0: The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. This morning, Pastor reminded us of the importance of the Word of God. I think it's a timely message. I know it's something that's talked about in our church often, but it's something we need to hear often. That God has spoken through his word and we need to hear what he has to say. We need it for every single day of our lives. And it got me thinking about how God's voice speaks to us in so many different tones. There's so many different ways that God speaks to us. And, And Pastor mentioned this morning about how just being in a situation in his life that he needed to hear from God. And God speaking through a psalm, through a beautiful psalm written Thousands of years ago by a prophet who was struggling, by, by a king who was struggling, and now God has used that so many years later. And, and sometimes we're not in that same situation. Other times, we're in a situation where we just need advice. We need to know what to do. We, we're stuck between two circumstances. Or, or maybe we're looking for direction on what God wants for our lives. Or maybe we're wondering how we're supposed to be parenting these crazy kids that God has given us. And we have no idea, no clue. And, and we look to the Word of God, and in different ways, He speaks to us. Right? We see the examples of others that have gone before us. We see their stories. We see God's faithfulness to them through the hard times. And we see their souls cry out to God in the midst of those things. So many different tones, and it's a beautiful thing. I am at the place right now in my life where, more than anything else, I just want to hear the story of Jesus. Um, I love church history. I love Reading about those books and and the things that have happened, I love theology, I love Paul's epistles that are filled with doctrine. I think those things are essential for the church. But for some reason now, I just feel like I want to be hearing about what Jesus did. I want to hear his words, I want to hear his life, and I'm thankful that I get to be preaching through the book of Mark. And I don't know what came first, I don't know if it was the idea that I was going to start Mark and then all of a sudden I got, you know I. but I love reading this. I've been reading Mark and then looking at all the passages in, in Matthew and in Luke and in John that coincide and getting the whole story and just it's been great to just get into Jesus and so hopefully tonight we can do that tonight and, and I hope that God somehow uses it to encourage you. One of the things that's interesting is that in pastor's message this morning he spoke about a time when God's voice was heard audibly right it was heard in a still small voice and the interesting part of this is that we understand that God speaks all the time, and that he, he really reveals himself through his word. But when you get into the Bible, you find that it's not very often God's voice is audibly heard. Most of the time, he speaks to his people through some kind of dream or some kind of vision um, sometimes he sends angels to deliver his message. Sometimes he does get together with one man, you know, one on one, and he'll speak to that person. But even when we get into like the New Testament, we know God's speaking in the New Testament. But we find that the way that we're that that's delivered to us is by Mark telling the story about what Jesus said. So that's God speaking. God has um, uh, given Mark the words to say through uh, divine inspiration. But he didn't audibly dictate every word Mark had to write down. And then Mark is is writing down the words of Jesus the Savior. And so, again, he's speaking, but not audibly. And so, pastor, I thought it was interesting, is in a passage, one of the very rare times that God audibly speaks. And tonight, we find ourselves in a completely different passage in the New Testament where God audibly speaks. So, it's kind of cool. So, I'm looking forward to getting into that tonight. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. We began Mark's gospel last week. And I mentioned a few things right from the get-go about Mark's gospel. Mark was a man who had witnessed the work of God through the disciples, that he'd attempted to serve God in missions, but failed miserably. And then he came back to Jerusalem. And it seems like he he got sitting at the feet of Peter, and he's able to learn and to grow. and, And later on, he went on a missions trip, and this time he didn't seem to fail with Barnabas and God just worked in his life and brought him to a place where he had heard so many stories from Peter. And he'd heard, spent so much time with the apostles that he understood the story of Jesus. And he, he sat down one day and thought, thought ah, I'm going to write about what, Jesus, what happened to Jesus. I'm, I'm going to write down the story. And he was the first gospel writer. And it's amazing how God worked through his life and transformed a, really a failure into somebody who did this work that has lasted for 2,000 years, that is inspired by God, that the church now uses. One thing I failed to mention last week about the Gospel of Mark is, is that it is actually one of the greatest historical books about Jesus, works about Jesus, because it was written so close to the time Jesus was alive. When we look back on history and we see all of the, the you know, great people who lived throughout the ages, we find that the things that were written about them were written hundreds of years later. But the Gospel of Mark was written 30 or less years after Jesus' death. It was written during a time where people there could have said, hey, that's not actually what happened. And so it's an incredibly significant historical document for us. It's encouraging. Mark wrote with a purpose. He wrote so that we would believe in Jesus and that we would follow him. And so with that in mind, let's look to Mark tonight. Verses 1 to 8 introduce us to a man with a message. Promised forerunner is John the Baptist. And shockingly, this man with strange clothing, even stranger diet, preaching in the middle of the desert, drew huge crowds of people. Thousands and thousands of people. Mark even says it's all of Jerusalem and all of Judea went out to, to hear him preach. And what's even more shocking is that they responded. And these people were repenting and they were being baptized with baptism of repentance. And John's message was crystal clear. You need to repent of your sinfulness and turn to God. And he's preaching to these people who are religious. And his message is you don't need more religion. Your Jewishness won't save you. You don't need to attend more services. You don't need sacraments. You don't need rituals. You don't need rites. That's not going to save you. You don't need more pious living. It's not just clean it up a little bit and you'll be all right. His message is... You must repent. And so they would. And they'd be baptized to demonstrate their acceptance of God's teaching. So water there is symbolic of cleansing. And as they get down into the water, they're saying, this is what's happening to me. I'm seeing the fact that I'm a sinner and that I need saving. And so they'd get in and water would symbolically wash away their sin. We understand that, that John even said his water didn't wash away sin. But it's just this, again, it's an inward, it's an outward action that demonstrates this inward attitude of their heart. They were baptized. We saw John the Baptist was a godly man. He was a humble man. He understood his place and the role that God had given him in the story. And he stepped aside as soon as he could. And he pointed people to Jesus. Verse number nine. It came to pass in those days... That Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. And he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then came a voice from heaven. You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan and was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered to him. Mark here is all about action. In these short verses, immediately this happened and then immediately that happened. There's no desire to waste words or give unnecessary details. He was like the perfect pastor, right? Not wasting words, not giving unnecessary details. I've heard that I do that sometimes. I apologize for that. But I I kind of wonder as I read this if he was just short on paper. Like I got to get this all in. Uh, he, was, uh, here, he was here and then he was here and he was here and that's that's pretty much it. And you look to to Matthew and you look to Luke and they give these paragraphs to describe what happened. And Mark just he just needs a couple of words because he wants to get the story down. He wants to know it went from here to here to here. And so here he gives us three connected events. He gives us the baptism of Jesus, the voice from heaven and the temptation of Jesus all in five verses. So I want to look at those events separately and then talk about what point Mark is trying to make. Verse number nine, it says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and he was baptized by John in the Jordan and immediately. And and Mark is very quickly moving from baptism to the next thing. But if you think about that for a second, what what is John's baptism? It's the baptism of repentance. And then we find out that Jesus, the Messiah, the sinless Lamb of God, comes to John to be baptized. Why? What is he doing? Why would Jesus need a baptism of repentance? So Mark just goes really quickly by this, but we have to ask the question, why is Jesus being baptized? And I think there's two reasons that he's being baptized. One of them we find in the book of Matthew, um, John actually kind of had the same dilemma. When Jesus came to him in the book of Matthew, Matthew records that John said, why are you, why are you coming to me to be baptized? I should be the one that's coming to you to be baptized. So he understood himself to be a sinner, himself to be needing the baptism of repentance, and he understood that Jesus didn't need this baptism. Right? And so we need to be clear that John understood Jesus was the sinless lamb of God. But Jesus still gets in the water. And in Matthew, it says Jesus, Matthew chapter 3 verse 15 says, Jesus answering said unto him, suffer it to be so now. In other words, John, just let it happen. And part of the reason I think he said just let it happen was kind of like, you're not going to understand it all right now. Okay, I don't have time to explain to you the whole reason, but just let it be so, and I'll give you, I'll give you a reason. For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Okay? Somehow, in order to fulfill all of the righteousness that Jesus was to fulfill, he needed to be baptized. And so, number one, first reason, he came to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was demonstrating complete and perfect obedience to the Father. If the Father said, go be baptized... Jesus would go be baptized. Um, it is possible that this is John, the forerunner of the Messiah and a Levite who was baptizing Jesus to fulfill the legal requirements of the priesthood. So if you want to look at it from a really like, let's, let's look at the Old Testament, let's connect all the dots, let's see what could be happening here. Jesus would be the Lamb of God and that's what he was announced as, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And now John baptizes them maybe to fulfill some of the, the laws of becoming a priest, to put him in that role. That's possible. I don't know. I, I think maybe part of it was just Jesus was being baptized because he was doing everything that a man ought to do. And and the people were supposed to. It was a good idea for them to go and to be baptized by John with baptism and repentance. And so Jesus went and he did that. didn't mean Jesus was repenting. But here's the second reason. And I actually find this second reason more compelling and more interesting that Jesus was being baptized to identify himself with sinners sinners went into the water and symbolically washed away their sins in the Jordan River right that's what they were doing they were saying I repent I can't save myself my religion can't save me I'm going in the water to be baptized in the baptism of repentance and my my sins are symbolically washed away by this water So now the picture is that all of these people, and thousands were there, all of them have been in the water, they've washed their sins, and now Jesus steps into the dirty, mucky, grimy Jordan River, and he identifies himself with all of those people. And not by his own power, but by another's power, he is put under the water and then brought back up again. And I think this, this identification is actually amazing when you think about it. Jesus was willing to go into to the place where men were. He willingly went in to be baptized. He didn't have to. He didn't need to repent. But he went in and took it upon himself to do that. That's a great picture of what was to come. So I think this is what Jesus is doing. Is he's saying, your sin is symbolically in this water, and I'm going in to take it. And I'm going in to take the, the punishment, or the, the baptism in this case, that is really meant for a sinner. I think that's a neat look. And, and we find in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that God made Jesus to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so it's just this, they go in, they get cleansed, Jesus goes in, and he takes our sin upon himself. So we find that in verse 9. Let's look at verse number 10. This is immediately coming up from the water, He saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Here we find the voice from heaven. One thing that I've always found interesting when I read this passage is that Mark says that Jesus saw the heavens open. And I find it interesting because why wouldn't you just say the heavens opened? Why would, you, why would you make a point? And all of the gospel writers actually do this. Why are they making the point that Jesus, Jesus is, is witnessing this? Now, there's, there's no indication that he's the only one that's witnessing it. It seems like everybody witnessed it and everybody heard the voice. And it, and it was like really God identifying to all of these people who this person was. But Jesus heard it. And I think there might be a long reason for this. But part of me wonders if this is the divine nature of God the Father ministering to the human nature of Jesus. And so I want you to think about it. I'm not going to explain that, but think about that for a little while, okay? Is this something that was meant somehow God was, was helping the human nature of Jesus okay? by, by tearing the heavens apart? And really, the open means torn apart and I kind of wonder what that looked like, too. What it was it look like when the heaven is torn apart? We might see that someday. But Jesus saw it that day. And then, then this voice comes out. And, and I, again, I wonder what that voice was like. I really find that the scriptures are fascinating when you start to think about what was actually happening. Have you ever tried... What does a voice sound like? Was it a still, small voice? Was it a whisper? I think in this case, I doubt it. I, I think in this case... He was declaring something to be the case. This is my beloved son. I think that, that there was a tone of power, and a tone of declaration, and, and wanting to know that everybody know the authority that this voice was speaking from. Remember, he didn't send angels to make this declaration. He could have. But he, God himself, spoke from heaven these words. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And really, this is you are my son who I love. And you are very pleasing to me. What a beautiful thing to say, too. And as the voice thunders, the Spirit comes down. And how many people have pictured this the Spirit of God coming down as a dove? And you just picture like a dove flying from the sky and like landing on Jesus' shoulder. It does happen on TV, I know. But do you notice the phraseology here that he said that, that he came as a dove? If I said, like, Miles ran and it was as fast as a cheetah, would you be like, wow, Miles transformed into a cheetah? No. Because you'd get that I'm trying to to make this comparison, right? And so Mark here is making a comparison. And I think what he's trying to do is, here's an event that people witnessed and they've attempted to describe to no avail. How do you describe the Spirit of God coming out of heaven and then, like, resting on Jesus? Nobody's ever seen that, right? We don't, we, we can't, you can't describe something that nobody has any, so he, he just, as a dove, I guess, kind of. Well, what is a dove like? Well, if you've ever seen a dove land, when they land, they're actually incredibly graceful creatures. They're very soft and slow and gentle. I mean, they, they can be ferocious too, but, but doves, when they come and land, they just look like they're in complete control and they're very slowly coming to rest exactly where they wanted to. Uh, it, it's not like there's any like crashing and burning in, in their landing. It's like just this, this purposeful but slow and gentle landing. And I think that's what he's trying to picture. Hey, the Spirit of God came out from heaven. We could all see it. And it just, it just made its way purposefully, slowly, gently, and rested and came upon Jesus. Right? Picture that happening and picture this voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased What an incredible scene this would have been. Jesus has just been baptized. I don't think that we can grasp the significance of these events. I think someday we'll be in heaven and we'll be like, wow, I I didn't realize that that was so important. It was so important that all four gospel writers chose to include it. And Mark said nothing about the the Virgin Mary's and nothing about the uh, nativity scene. I mean, nothing, but this is included. I think it's important. Now, as we think about the Spirit coming down, there's a great deal of symbolism, again, attached to this and a great deal of prophecy that's being fulfilled in this. Um, Jesus, his human nature, throughout his ministry, was aided by the Holy Spirit. And that's really an interesting thing because we know Jesus, in his divine nature, could have done all the things that he did, right? And there are sometimes it seems like he he used his own power, by his own power, he did something. But then there are other times that it says the Spirit of God did it. In Acts chapter 10, verse 38, Peter is speaking to Cornelius. And he says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Part of Jesus' power was that the Holy Spirit anointed him. Then in Matthew 12, 38, Jesus cast out demons. And it was, he said he was casting out demons by the power of the Spirit of God. And so many things that Jesus did. I think that he's, again, being this incredible example for us. Right? He's the perfect man, and the Spirit of God is guiding him, controlling him, and empowering him for his ministry. And this is kind of the coronation of that. This is him being crowned by God, that he is the, the Messiah, he's my son, he's the king that will reign on the throne of, of David. Right? He is the one that has my spirit in him to do my work. One of the greatest gifts that's given to us in this text is the opportunity to see the three distinct members of the Trinity all in one, all in one short passage, right? I, there is a lot of misunderstanding about the Trinity. And the, and the truth is, it's mysterious. And I've heard some people be like, hey, I, I get it. I know how the Trinity works. And I'm like, I don't, I don't think you do. I just feel like you think you do, but you don't. And it is it is confusing, but it's not It's not unclear. So it's confusing in the sense that I don't think we can fully wrap our brains around it. But it's not that God has made it unclear. And I think the confusion comes mostly when we're trying to force the Trinity into our brain. And then it's like, wow, that that doesn't fit as well as I want it to. But God has made it very clear that he is three distinct persons, right? It's not just like he's a, a father and a son and... Uh, um, what's the other one? A husband at the same time. Hey, that's Some people are trying to explain the Trinity that way. That he just has like these three different roles that he, he picks up a different role or a different hat that day. That's not it at all. He, he's three distinct persons. They're three separate entities, but they all collectively form the Godhead. And each of them are deity. They're each God. But the whole Godhead requires all of them. And all together, they form not three gods, but one God. So it's confusing a little bit, right? But it is clear in Scripture that this is, this is the truth. And here we see all three members. I heard someone say, if you try to explain the Trinity, you will lose your mind. But if you deny it, you will lose your soul. <laughs> and I think that's, that's true. Um, and so... Here we have this great gift um, that Mark, again, has given us of just this demonstration of the three members of the Godhead in one. Working together, together, uh, I think that's actually a really neat part of this, that they're all working together in God's plan of redemption. Jesus is there, and he's on mission, and God is there saying, this is my messenger, this is the Christ, this is, this is the Son of God, whom I'm well pleased, I'm well pleased with the mission he's on. And here's the Holy Spirit to help and empower that mission to go forward. Mark chapter 1, verse 12. Immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. I hear this verse and I often think, like, because we know that it went from baptism to wilderness, but it's like Mark's like, right away! And here Jesus has just come up from baptism, so he's nice and refreshed and cool on, on this hot summer day. And then the... Heaven opens and, and God says He's well pleased with him. And the Spirit comes down and everybody's there watching and applauding and be like, "This is the craziest thing we've ever seen. This is amazing." God spoke from heaven. We know that that Jesus is the Son of God. And immediately he doesn't get to go like and enjoy you know the the rounds for a while and shake hands and have people pat him on the back and say, "You're you're awesome." He doesn't get to enjoy the fame for a little while. Immediately the Spirit of God takes him into the desert so they're already in the desert right that's where John's preaching from and now he has to go way further into the desert why because you have to get away from all the people we don't want anybody helping you we don't want anybody near you we don't want anybody applauding you we want you to be all by yourself as lonely as possible in fact the only people there we'll read on were crazy wild animals and he was there in the wilderness 40 days tempted by Satan and was with the wild beasts right and part of the reason for this Um, Ken Hughes put it this way. He said, Heaven had opened, now hell had opened. In Jewish thought, the wilderness was was viewed as a place of danger, gloom, and the abode of demons. And the mention of wild animals underscores this idea. The wilderness was a place of loneliness and danger, the realm of Satan. So Jesus goes from this incredible event to the realm of Satan. Why? So that for 40 days, he would eat nothing, drink nothing, and then be tempted by Satan. Um, The verse ends with, the angels ministered to him. And so for 40 days, Jesus does not eat or drink. At the end of this time, he is tempted three times by Satan. Mark doesn't mention the temptations, just that he was tempted. And we understand that he was tempted um, to turn stones into bread. This would be the lust of the flesh. He's tempted to jump off the temple and that God would send angels to save him. This is lust of pride, and that he's tempted to be the king of the nations. I think this is uh, the lust of the eyes that he could be king of everything he sees. And in these temptations, we see that Jesus fully fulfilled all righteousness. He went through—I mean—a horrible circumstance where all of his faculties would be depleted, his his personal strength would be depleted. And then he's tempted to do all the things that we are tempted to do and we find really difficult to stand against when we're at our best, right? You walk out a Sunday morning and and, and you've just heard, you've got to live for God and you want to live for God and then all of a sudden this temptation comes your way and you're, you're struggling. You're at your best. Jesus is here. He's humanly speaking at his worst, right? He's at his weakest point. And he's put in front of us these three impossible temptations. To eat after not eating for 40 days? To show that you're God by, by falling off and having angels take care of you? God would have done that, right? And then to be the king of all the nations? Can you imagine how difficult that would be to say no to? And Jesus at his, humanly speaking, weakest point is perfect in his righteousness. He does not one thing wrong and he proves that he is the sinless lamb of God that has been sent to take away the sins of the world. We have undeniable proof that Jesus is perfectly righteousness. He goes into the desert, puts on the gloves with Satan and proves his sinless perfection without any doubt. And so the angels come, they minister to him. And I wonder as the angels come to minister to him, if they have, if they have any clue what's going on. I talked about the verse this morning, how the angels like, look into the salvation that we have that they're just kind of amazed by it how is this how is this possible i think of these angels who have sat at the throne of jesus or, or kneeled at the throne of jesus and saying holy 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 and they know that jesus is the, the king of the universe the creator of all things he speaks and things come into existence and now they're seeing this weak man who for 40 year 40 days has not eaten a thing and they're bringing him water and bread or whatever, whatever ministering to him, I wonder what they're thinking as they're ministering to Jesus. See, see how, how Jesus just poured out himself for us? That he took on all of that for us? That he went through all of that for us? There was a purpose in all of it, right? And so what do we walk away with today? As, as we look at these verses, what do we go home with? Um, in many ways, this week has felt like an endless number of rabbit trails, That this text just brings up like a thought or or an allusion to an Old Testament or some type of application that you can make. And I find myself just running down each rabbit trail and being like, okay, kind of coming back. Is that the point, right? Is that is that what he's trying to get across? So I was tempted to talk about the importance of obedience, right? Because Jesus had this perfect obedience to his father. And if he was so perfectly obedient, shouldn't we try to be obedient to our father? Yes, we should. I wanted to talk about how God is pleased with his children. Right? The fact that he would say that to Jesus and now he's made us his children and how much he loves us and that that'd be a fun thing to talk about on Sunday night. Uh, I think it's fascinating to think that that the same spirit that empowered Jesus now resides in us to empower us to the work that, that he has called us to. So God called Jesus to a work and and sent him the spirit and now he's called us to the to a work and sent us the spirit and how crazy it is that we have the spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead living in us, and how that should motivate us to go out and do the work. I thought it was interesting that God brought Jesus from the pinnacle of his love and his acceptance into the desert, into the lowest place. And the Spirit led him there. The Spirit was there in the first place, led him into the desert, and didn't leave him there. He never was in the desert all alone. And how that's sometimes how God works, that we are on this mountaintop, and then all of a sudden life comes crashing down but the spirit that was there with us on the mountain is is with us through the journey the whole way. And he's teaching us. There's a purpose in all of those things, right? We could spend time on the methods that Jesus used to fight temptation, right? He used the word of God, clearly interpreted word of God to fight against temptation. And so I could talk about that. I don't know if that was the purpose, right? Actually, Mark doesn't even include The temptation part. He includes that he was tempted. He doesn't include how he fought it. Mark, I think, is introducing us to Jesus. So he's sitting down for the first time a gospel's been written, and he's thinking about people that some have read the Old Testament, know the Old Testament well, and might be able to make some of the connections. Some of them are hearing about this for the very first time. And so he's just telling them, this is what happened. This is how he started. This This was the start of his ministry. Jesus arrived. He was welcomed by the messenger that was sent before him. He was baptized with identifying himself with all these people. God spoke from heaven, endorsed him. The spirit came down to empower him. He proved his righteousness through the fire of temptation. This is who Jesus was. This is, this is the big picture. Right? Mark is, is not thinking about little lessons that can be taught on a Sunday night. Mark is thinking about telling the whole story of redemption. And how does this these little events fit into that story? And, and I think that what we find is Jesus here identifies himself with the sinner. I think that fits into the story. And I think that's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful truth. Jesus came and he made himself sin for you. He took upon flesh, so he identified himself in, in our humanity. And then he went and he was willing to get, go into the baptism of repentance with us as well. And ultimately, eventually, we know where that led, right? He led to him going to the cross for us. Jesus is identifying himself with the sinner. Being immersed in the mucky Jordan River that symbolically contained the sins of so many present was the perfect way to do that. This is, this is what I've come for. Come to take their sin. Jesus is coronated as the Son of God by God Himself. And I think that fits into the big story. We need to know who we're talking about. We're not talking about a man who just did really nice things, or a man who set examples, a man who was willing to be baptized, and a man who was willing to be tempted, and all those. We're not just talking about a man. Right? We understand that this was God's mission, God's messenger that God endorsed Jesus to do the mission that he, went, that he had sent him on. This declaration of the Father is a fulfillment of the prophecies of the servant of God coming down to do the will of God. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, Isaiah prophesied, he said, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. In whom I am well pleased. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He's prophesying about Jesus. This is this is the Messiah that would come. And you'll be well pleased with him. And he would put his spirit upon him, and he would have a mission to the Gentiles to bring justice. Isaiah 53.11. Isaiah goes on. He says, By his knowledge, my righteous servant, so my servant, Shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And it's the identification of Jesus as identifying himself with sinners and the taking upon sin and being the Son of God, the servant that was sent. So he receives here the unequivocal endorsement of the Father, and then he proves his position and his ministry in the desert. He is immediate, immediately faced with the hostility of Satan. And so. There are truths here. I think there are a lot of little lessons we can take from this test, text. But I think we're meant to leave with just that, that Jesus was the Son of God. That Jesus identified with us in our sin. And that Jesus proved himself to be the sinless lamb. And if those things are true, then we ask the question, Okay, so now what? And I think, I think that's the application here. If Jesus is the son of God, if he has come to bear my sin, and he proved himself that he could do that, that he was the sacrificial lamb who was sinless and perfectly righteous, if those things are true, now what do I do? And if you're not a believer in Christ, if you don't know the Jesus that Mark is writing about, you come to him. You realize that just like the Jews there who are being baptized, repenting, they've they are being baptized because religion couldn't do it. Jewishness couldn't do it. And there's no religion that can do it. But Jesus could do it. right? He was the one that was sent to baptize with the Holy Ghost. He could save. And so he came to bear your sin. So if you don't know Jesus tonight, put your trust in him. And if you do, then how does the work of Jesus here, the mission of Christ, the message of Christ, how does it change us every day? Does it change you as a father? Does it change you as a wife? Does it change you as a mother, a husband, a son, a daughter, an employee, an employer, a student? I mean, a friend, a neighbor? There's just, it should be changing us every day, right? We need to get back to the central focus. And rather than going on these rabbit trails, I thought, he's the son of God. He identified himself with me. He died for me. He proved that he could take my sin. And so then now what? I think that's what Mark was doing. And so we come to the end of this and we say, okay, what am I supposed to do? Let's pray.